Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hello, welcome to New Scientist Weekly. I'm Rowan Hooper. And I'm Penny Sarche. You're asking a big chunk of an elephant's life and a burden on them, on them metabolically, a potential risk to them health-wise, all just to find out whether your gene edits worked. That was Tori Herridge talking about the $15 million quest to bring back the woolly mammoth from extinction. We'll hear from her later in the show. Also coming up today, we have news from space, from SpaceX and their launch of a spacecraft crewed entirely by non-astronauts. And we've got the latest COVID news too. And we're also hearing about why a New Zealand scientist has been potty training cows. (laughs) All that coming up. But first, don't miss our September introductory offer. If you subscribe now, you get 12 weeks for half price on either our print, digital or bundle packages. Follow the link newscientist.com slash September 21 now. What a deal. 12 weeks for half price. Go to newscientist.com slash September 21 to sign up. We're going to start this week with a report from the campaign group Global Witness. We've probably all come across uh, some kind of environmental activism in recent years. It's really starting to ramp up. And many of us may have taken part in some sort of demonstration ourselves. Yeah, some some sorts of demonstration. But yeah, not on this level we're about to hear about. Mm. So in some parts of the world, demonstration and activism can be incredibly dangerous. And the Global Witness report just out shows that at least 227 people were killed last year while they were working to protect the environment. In a minute, we're going to hear from Global Witness directly. But first, we have a clip they've given us. We're going to hear from Malungelo Zakaza from South Africa. Her mother was protesting against the expansion of a massive open cast coal mine, the Tendele coal mine in KwaZulu-Natal. And last year, three men entered her mother's home and shot her dead. My mom wasn't against the mine. My mom was just a person who wanted to make sure that all proper procedures are followed so that both the mine and the community do gain from this. The people who didn't understand my mom's um, vision played a part in my mom's murder. That's just horrendous and terrifying. And, And as we said, she's just one of 227 environmental activists killed last year. To discuss this further, Rowan spoke with Laura Ferrones of Global Witness. 
What we're showing this year is that 227 land and environmental defenders were killed in 2020. This is a, a shocking average of more than four people a week. And that's the worst figure we've ever recorded. And we just heard that clip earlier from the daughter of Fikele Natsangase, who was killed by gunmen last year. Uh, I don't suppose those gunmen have been caught, do we know? Unfortunately, um, you know, most of the cases, the, the large majority of the cases we record suffer from the same problem, which is a problem of impunity. So it's very rare that um, the perpetrators are ever caught or brought to justice. If we're lucky, we might hear about the material perpetrators, so the person who pulled the trigger, but the people behind the murder, uh, so the intellectual murders are very rarely prosecuted and very rarely convicted. Now, half of the murders that you've been reporting took place in just three countries, Colombia, Mexico and the Philippines. Can you explain why the, the violence is concentrated in those places? Sadly, um, as has been the case in previous years, Latin America holds the record uh, of killings. There's a number of reasons for that. But Colombia, number one, was number one last year as well and has seen a very sharp uh, rise in killings. In fact, for the second year in a row, Colombia has got m- more killings than any other country around the world. And the reasons for this are a mixture of a, a very complex social and political environment, uh, but also as a result of the 2016 peace agreement, which sort of ended a decade-long war between the government forces and the FARC. This peace agreement has, in fact, not really brought peace to large parts of the country. So Colombian civil society tells us that uh, there's been a very poor implementation of the agreement. So what's happened in practice is that in many remote areas, it's been paramilitary and criminal groups who have increased control through violence and lack of state action. So the killings in Colombia are very much linked to this and obviously the background of narco-trafficking. In the case of Mexico, yes, there's also been a very sharp rise, I'm afraid. Um, We've gone from um, 18 killings last year, well, in 2019 to 30 killings in 2020. And most of those cases have been related to logging, uh, which is a sector that's been particularly bloody this year. So most of the cases have been related to to logging. And the Philippines also holds a very dark record over the years, um, again, because of the um, Duterte administration and the social and political uh, background and the deterioration of human rights. The report shows that indigenous people are feeling the brunt of this violence. So uh, can you tell us about that and, and, and what we're learning from that? Yes, in 2020, and in fact, in previous years as well, uh, the disproportionate number of attacks uh, against Indigenous peoples uh, really continued. I think what this shows is the level of vulnerability and exposure that these people have because they live closest to the land, the actual land they're defending, and how how they are having to fight for themselves to keep the, the most basic rights over those lands. It also shows how little protection they have. So what's the what's the best outcome for you in this? What do we... Are you trying to change things at a sort of local level, you know, to get better communication and better understanding between people on the ground? Or do we need to sort of look higher up the tree, as it were, and look at government and state behaviour 
Well, the the problem with um, attacks uh, to defenders, land and environmental defenders, is so complex that it really does require action and commitment from many different stakeholders at very different um, levels. So yes, it needs to start at a country level. And in that sense, states really have the responsibility to protect the citizens. And so they need to ensure that the national policies and legal frameworks recognize um, and safeguard the rights of defenders so they can do their work without fearing for for their lives. But obviously, there's also more global uh, approaches to the problem because it is indeed a a global problem. And so there's at the moment, um, you know, legislation, for instance, in the European Commission. And so there's uh, pieces of legislation that are being um, approved or, or are being discussed regarding due diligence. So in other words, what can the European um, Commission and the European Union as a whole do to ensure that companies operating in countries where defenders are killed are following uh, due diligence and are ensuring that the, the companies are not uh, in any way violating human rights? What can people listening do? Because I think a lot of people will be shocked by what they've heard. This really brings home to us who might not have known about it, about the great sacrifice and the great effort that people around the world that we don't hear about, the things that they're doing. And we talk about the front line of climate change, but this is genuinely, a, literally a front line. It's not a metaphor of war. You know, they're really fighting for the global environment. So we need to celebrate and protect these people, don't we? Absolutely. I mean, it really isn't a metaphor, sadly. These are people who risk their lives every day, and many of them are aware that they do. Many of them have received threats. Many of them have been told to stop, and they just don't. They refuse to do that. And we need to remember that these are the people who are, in fact, doing uh, the most important, the possible work to defend our planet. All of us as individuals have a responsibility to stand up with them, I think. And we, as you point out, we're seeing a number of really interesting and powerful movements growing around the globe to ensure that these these people are uh, protected and are able to do their work. But obviously, standing in solidarity with them whilst a very good um, action is nowhere near enough. Uh, so we, as you know, as consumers, as citizens, we have the possibility to lobby our own government and to talk to our own government and um, even, you know, make decisions about what kind of companies we engage with in our daily lives. There have been some successes, of course, um, with people defending um, the environment and the land. Let's talk about some of those. Yes, there are some good news. There's been a number of cases, for instance, in South Africa, the South African High Court cancelled the environmental approval for a planned coal fire power station um, in one of the provinces in the north of the country. You know, we hear that that project would have in fact, been one of the most emission-intensive power plants in the world. So obviously, this has impact way beyond uh, South Africa, and it's you know it's good news for for all of us really. We've also had news, uh, good news in Zimbabwe, where the Environmental Laws Association took the government and two companies to court over again another proposed uh, coal mining in a national park, um, which is the country's uh, largest protected area. And just yesterday, in fact, I think I saw um, in the paper that research has now shown that most of the planned coal 
um, mines in the coming decades are going to be scrapped. And obviously that is uh, really good news because it implies there's clear recognition about the very harmful effects of coal extraction for the climate crisis and how we're seeing some, you know, the tide gradually changing. Now it's the SpaceX segment of the show and we had a launch with a difference last night. Yeah, uh, that was the Inspiration4 launch, uh, which safely launched from Kennedy Space Centre. It's currently in orbit as we speak. And the big deal about this is there are no professional astronauts Mm. on board. Yeah, it's the first time that's happened. All four of the passengers are private individuals. It's a privately paid for flight. The commander is a guy called Jared Isaacman. He's a billionaire and a pilot. Uh, He paid for it. And you say he's commander, but is he actually commanding the mission? And and how much did he pay for the privilege? Well, yeah, he's not commanding it as as we might imagine in a normal NASA flight, because, yeah, the four crew members are amateurs. They don't have to do anything technical by way of launching or landing the spacecraft. So he's the commander. The pilot is the first woman of colour to be a private spacecraft pilot. Her name's Sean Proctor. Uh, she's a teacher from Phoenix. Oh, and this is good. When she learned that she'd been selected for the mission, she said it was like when Harry Potter found out he was a wizard. It was a little bit of shock and awe. <laughs> That's nice. Um, so, yeah, as for the cost, it cost Isaacman about $200 million, which is a lot of money. Um, but they say they're trying to match that. They're aiming to raise $200 million for the St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. <laughs> I mean, you could just cut out the middlemen and donate the money to the hospital, right? (laughs) Yeah, you could. Uh, It's notable for a couple of other things. Um, On board is a physician assistant at St. Jude's. Um, Her name's Hayley Arcano. She's 29 and becomes the youngest American to fly to space and the first person ever to fly to space with a prosthesis. Yeah, I saw that. So she has a prosthesis in her leg as a result of uh, bone cancer that she'd had when she was a kid. And so this mission, it's fully automated, is it? And it's just going to drift in orbit for three days and come back home? Yep. It's the Crew Dragon capsule that's been previously used for SpaceX to get there as an operational mission to deliver astronauts to the ISA, the International Space Station. And another thing about this is that um, the flight now means, this mission now means there are 14 people currently in orbit, which is a new record. I'm guessing this flight really does set us up to send more tourists into space. And I won't bang on about it, but you know my (laughs) feelings about that. The carbon emissions are horrendous. I know, but... It really does um, set us up for more tourists in space. Um, Isaacman, he's, he's basically he's chartered a spacecraft for this flight and, and he was able to choose the schedule and the altitude. This is higher than SpaceX have ever flown. It's higher than the ISS is in orbit. And SpaceX has loads of plans. It's going to use Crew Dragon to launch further amateur trips to orbit in the next few months. And there's a couple of other companies, Axiom and Space Adventures, that are uh, collaborating with SpaceX. And Axiom has really advanced plans to put a hotel in space. Let's take a quick break. We want to tell you about a sale just starting now over at New Scientist Academy. Up to £100 off our awesome courses. Yep, New Scientist Academy offers six online courses, now including our newest course launching today, which is Consciousness, Getting to Grips with the World's Deepest Mystery. And that's with Professor Anil Seth, who was a guest on the pod a few weeks ago. There are also expertly curated and presented courses on general relativity, sustainability, and on your immune system and how to boost it. 
Also, we've got the biggest mysteries of the cosmos. And another one is how your brain works and how to make the most of it. All courses will be £149 instead of £199 or £249. And the sale is for one week only and will end on Thursday, the 23rd of September. Go to newscientist.com slash courses to sign up. And now, here's a story that comes around every few years without fail. Mammoths. <laughs> yeah, I think I first reported on this um, on a Japanese team working on trying to clone mammoths 20 years ago. Yeah, I spoke with geneticist George Church about this back in 2017, and it's in the news again now because he has co-founded a company called Colossal, ha ha ha, aimed at bringing back the mammoth, and they've raised $15 million to do it. Yeah, the idea is to try and extract DNA from mammoth remains, sequence the genome, and implant genes into an elephant egg, and then make an elephant hybrid, an elephant-mammoth hybrid. So you get a genetically modified elephant, basically. Uh, so I spoke to Tori Herridge about this. She's an evolutionary biologist at the Natural History Museum in London, and she works on fossil elephants and mammoths. If you can create confidence, a high coverage mammoth genome or several mammoth genomes, then from that, you can start to maybe understand what's going on with mammoth genes. That's the first step. And so what this group, Colossal, George Church's group, hope to do is to use CRISPR technology, which is a gene editing tool, to take mammoth genes and then pop those genes, those target genes, into an Asian elephant's genome, sort of tinker with the Asian elephant scaffold and pop in key genes they think are important. And so that that's the premise. And it sounds really like sensible. I mean, kind of like, okay, that sounds plausible. I buy it. And but it, well, and maybe it is. Yeah, maybe it is until you backtrack at every single step and think, right. well, what does it actually mean? What needs to be done at each step? Well, let's talk about the, the practical ethics of it then. Because I, I was talking with our co-host about this, Penny. It pisses her off, basically, this whole thing. She's a whole macho enterprise. You know, quite rightly, you know, she sees elephants as these sentient beings. They're endangered or threatened, depending on which species you look at. Um, You know, you need to take loads of these animals to get them pregnant. And then you, you know, you might end up with one mammoth hybrid weird individual that has no proper parents. It's on its own. It doesn't have any other friends with it. It doesn't have any of its culture that we know elephants have. So that's a whole nother strand of, of ethical bothersomeness but aren't they making an argument an ecological argument that there is an ecological role of the mammoth and that that could eventually be brought back is what what is that all about yeah that's the top that's their top justification on on the sort of list of things you know, list of reasons to do it on the colossal website number one is the kind of ecosystem function rewilding angle and it stems from the idea which is undisputed actually that elephants are ecosystem modifiers so living elephants undoubtedly modify their ecosystems and I am absolutely sure that mammoths did too and played an important role in creating the world in which they live so the idea that elephants and mammoths are ecosystem modifiers brings us around to the question of what role did mammoths play in their own arctic ecosystems right and the idea there is that the mammoth steppe, this wonderful, vast Arctic savanna, basically a grassland that stretched all across Siberia into Alaska and the Yukon and supported like huge herds of, of mega herbivores, these big herbivorous mammals, and of course the, the predators that fed upon them. But mammoths were vital in both the creation and maintenance of that ecosystem. And it was the loss of the mammoth 
that precipitated the loss of that ecosystem. So, uh, and there, of course, that's so, you know, then, of course, you ask, well, what was the reason for the mammoths being lost? And usually the argument from the same people who see the loss of the mammoth step as being linked to the loss of the mammoth, the argument is humans caused mammoth extinction. But that's just one hypothesis and it isn't, it isn't proven. And there's a whole other camp that don't think that's the case at all. You don't even think the humans are the main driver of mammoth extinction. And you can model the, the shift in the biome, the shift in the type of ecosystem based on climate change alone. So I think there's a lot to be discussed there still as a justification, right? So the idea is, of course, if you bring the mammoth back, then you recreate the lost ecosystem. And that's important because that mammoth step is thought to be a better hope for mitigating climate change in the sense that it has a higher albedo. So for long-term feedbacks, it reflects more light, it absorbs less heat. So these kind of like dark forested stands of trees and shrubs absorb more heat. And secondly, the presence of, of large numbers of large mammals trample the ground, they trample the snow cover, they trample the, the um, ground itself. And that trampling actually helps to, if you like, condense the permafrost layer and small scale experiments at Pleistocene Park have suggested that that kind of trampling, that kind of compression of the permafrost can help reduce the um, temperatures of the soil. And so in the very short term, even a bit of significant trampling could maybe push the balance towards slower permafrost melt in the Arctic, which does seem quite useful. But of course, you know, those experiments were done without mammoths. So Putting aside the ethics and the the end point claim that it could re-engineer the mammoth step, do you think now that with this $15 million and with the, the latest tech that we've got, do you think now they've got a better shot of at least getting a thing made, grown up and born? Uh, not without an awful lot of elephants being used as sort of experimental subjects really so uh, i mean so here's here are the here are the things that we don't know we currently do not know which genes are responsible for producing which aspects of mammoth biology versus elephant biology there are candidates but it's not exhaustive so crispr you know is seems to be like a fairly useful tool although interestingly vincent lynch was talking to me on Twitter and he he is skeptical that it will be that that it will be that easy to use in elephants partly because of the you know, there's an awful lot of gene duplications in elephant um, genomes maybe CRISPR won't work as as neatly on elephant genomes as it's implied but even if it does we don't know that the genes are going to snip and replace are the ones that do the job right so you've got this edited stem cell that then becomes an edited egg either make which is also not proven let's just get the technology so they're either going to create a synthetic egg which is cool it's been done in mice it's not been done in elephants um or they're going to harvest elephant eggs from a from a mother also as far as i know not been done and probably a level of pain and discomfort in that procedure anyway and then you've got your embryo presumably in a petri dish that you can then check using like various gene assays to see whether or not those genes you put in are doing something and go, okay, they seem to be working. That's good. They're expressing something. But we don't know what, because lots of genes have multiple functions. There's a lot of stuff we don't know about how you get from genes to appearance or genes to metabolic function. It's a whole massive unknown. So at that point, you have to decide, are we just going to suck it and see and pop it in anyway? <laughs> and, that, and that's a, a yeah. really big ethical question, because what are you popping it into? You're popping it into a, an intelligent animal 
you know, who it has its own rights, right? You know, in captivity, we, you know, we should be striving for elephants in captivity to have the best life they possibly can. And one of the things they have a right to is the right to be a mother. So to take those problems of, of, of breeding in captivity for an elephant and then ask that cow, the elephant mother, to go through it for an experimental procedure that they won't benefit from at the end of it, to me, has all kinds of ethical implications, particularly if you're not going to know if it's worked until a certain stage along the pregnancy. So, I mean, so there are all kinds of issues to even to get to that stage because we don't know what's going to happen because every single step is experimental. You're asking a big chunk of an elephant's life and a burden on them, on them metabolically, a potential risk to them health-wise, all just to find out whether your gene edits worked. Next up, we have important news for anyone needing to potty train a pet cow. Brilliant. That's truly news you can use. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, uh, the point is, well, there is a kind of point, because unlike us and many other animals, cows... They don't make efforts to restrict, the, let's say, the, the timing or location of when they need to excrete their waste. Right. So it just comes out all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's a problem, because if you think about the number of cows that are out there and they just relieve themselves all over the place, that leads to quite a lot of pollution of waterways. And the nitrous oxide that arises when livestock urine and feces mix, that can cause respiratory problems and contributes to global warming. And so the solution is potty training. <laughs> well, yeah, it's not going to be the total solution, but, uh, you know, we need to do all we can. Um, and if this can make things a little bit better, then it may be worth trying. So a team in New Zealand are trying to train cattle to void directly into a kind of cow toilet. So at this point, I have to ask, are you planning a toilet humour segment on every episode now? <laughs> <laughs> Um, no I'll try not to I'll try not to rein me in if I do it again next week <laughs> okay then go on okay um, yeah so they've taught heifers to use this custom-built latrine and they've trained they've literally trained them with treats like you train a puppy and they punish the animals and uh, if they pee in the wrong place the animals get sprayed with a water sprinkler and did it work yeah they they, they had 10 training sessions and after that 11 of the heifers were using the latrine 77 percent of the time by the way, that performance topped that of a human toddler that's learning to toilet train. <laughs> but this is like a sobering vision into my future. As <laughs> yeah, <a new> mom. <laughs> yeah. Toddlers are harder to toilet train than cows. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, if all this works, you could potentially cut down on the nitrous oxide produced by cattle. That's the idea. And that's got to be a good thing, I guess, as nitrous oxide is 300 times more potent than carbon dioxide and 10 times more so than methane as a greenhouse gas. Yeah, and the gases really build up and they can cause res respiratory damage and the urine can damage the hooves of cows. But does that just happen for cattle housed indoors all the time? Yes, but that is, you know, we always think of, of cows, you know, prancing around on nice green fields. But obviously there are many robot dairy farms where cows are kept inside year round. And then there are these mega farms called CAFOs, concentrated animal feeding operations, where there's thousands of cows kept inside their industrialized rearing facilities basically and these produce huge amounts of waste oh, so um this cow latrine idea isn't going to be much help for these sort of horrendous fast facilities is it no uh, no i mean i think the the idea is that if you do have pastures you can put these latrines there and that that way you could control the runoff of, of urine and waste but yeah it's not going to help in these industrialized settings I think I can get behind cattle farming to some extent. 
if you imagine the nice pasture-fed animals that are doing weeing into a latrine and and if you put a very high carbon price on the product you get out but uh, i can't get behind industrial cattle farming at all and i can't see this helping me and now it's everyone's least favorite yet absolutely essential topic and it's covid penny um i'm really hate to have to ask this question but are we heading for another lockdown yeah, that is the big question in a uh, week full of questions. Um, so we've got, is the Delta variant worse for kids? Should 12 to 15 year olds get vaccinated? When will the UK government switch to its plan B of infection control measures? Right. OK, let's start with kids. Um, so is the Delta variant worse than the original one for children? Yeah, so that's a question that's being asked in the US a lot right now. Just as an aside, it's quite surprising, really, um, how COVID affects kids is this huge issue in the US media. But the UK seems much less interested. Yeah. Um, So just a, a bit of a puzzle there, really. Anyway, as vaccines are rolled out in wealthy nations and kids return to school, what we're inevitably seeing is that the average age of people who have COVID or who are hospitalised for COVID is getting lower in many places. And and that's prompted people to ask if Delta might be affecting kids worse than the original variant. So our health reporter, Claire Wilson, delved into the evidence this week. What she found is that, as yet, there doesn't seem to be evidence that the Delta variant makes kids more likely to need hospital. But because the variant is so much more infectious and easy to catch, children are more likely to get it. And and then from there, it's a numbers game. The more right. kids that catch it, the more kids that will end up in hospital. And although the death rate from COVID in children is low, it's not zero. So as we let mm. coronavirus rip through the schools, there will be child COVID deaths. Good and God. of course, long COVID cases too, uh, because uh, long COVID seems to be really quite common among young people who get infected. Yeah. So what does that mean about vaccinating kids? Yeah, so much of the data on Delta and kids comes from the US. Um, and it's a really interesting picture there because in America, you essentially have all these different experiments underway because states are adopting different combinations of measures. And so what we're tending to see so far is that the states with higher numbers of children in hospital with COVID, those tend to be the states where fewer people get vaccinated and where mask wearing isn't mandatory. But if you compare that to the UK, uh, we're actually coming from behind because the UK has only now this week announced its plans to offer vaccination for all 12 to 15 year olds. But the US has actually been doing this for a while. And mask wearing is uh, no longer officially required in UK schools in line with the, the government's lifting of almost all coronavirus restrictions. I, I have to ask, I hate to ask, but are we heading for another lockdown in the UK? I'd say there's everything to play for. Um, According to the UK government's emergency science advice committee, SAGE, we could be seeing a rapid acceleration in COVID hospitalisation soon. We're already starting from a high baseline level of infection. And it's possible that in October, we could be seeing somewhere between 2,000 and 7,000 COVID cases admitted to hospital a day. And that's really bad. Our peak last winter for context was around 4,500. Well, that's that's terrifying, actually. Yeah, it could be super bad. And what makes it even worse is if you think about it, healthcare workers are exhausted. um, And then our hospitals this year, they've got long COVID patients and potentially we could have a bad flu season this year too. There is some good news in that Sage reckoned that reintroducing some measures like mask wearing and working from home, that may be enough to prevent this from happening. But we would probably need to start this really, really soon. And this week, the UK government has been making noises along the lines of only reintroducing measures 
happens if and when the NHS starts to get overwhelmed. And (sighs) by that point, it's already too late. Yeah, which is starting to feel a lot like last October. Yeah, and I hate saying this, but I would put it this way. I just wouldn't make any big plans for Christmas just yet. That's all for this week. Thanks to our guests, Laura Ferrones and Tori Herridge. And thanks to you for listening. Remember, there's a special September deal at the moment. You can get 12 weeks of premium New Scientist content for half price. Go to newscientist.com slash September 21 to subscribe. That's it. Thanks again. Do spread the word and see you next week. Bye bye. Goodbye. This podcast is produced by Ollie Guillou Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. 